reads from the Gospel, which is the good news of Jesus, which is written by Luke, chapter 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on the earth. I'm going to pass over to Matt now, who's going to continue in our series on biblical personal spiritual habits. Uh, it's great to see you today at EU Public Meeting. Um, earlier this year, <clears throat> sorry, earlier this year, I had the great privilege of being able to travel to the UK and meet with um, some Christian brothers and sisters who are involved in establishing a national network uh, for postgraduate student ministry throughout the UK. I got to travel up to Cambridge one day and spent a day answering questions about what we do here at Sydney University. And they were really generous with their time as well. They took me around the city, around the town, showing me off some of the highlights of Cambridge, um, which was really kind of them. This is my friend Tim, who works for KICU, the uh, group of Cambridge, the Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union, which is a pretty terrible name, or pretty terrible acronym, KICU. It's almost as bad as the group at Oxford. They're called OIQ. And um, you can work out the group that used to be known as LICU uh, in London. <laughs> They changed their name very quickly. Um, they took me around. That's King's College Chapel in the background there, and that's me inside King's College Chapel, and they wanted to show off students punting down the River Cam because that's what you do in the middle of the day uh, when you're in Cambridge and a student. One of the things that they didn't include on their tour that I was really keen to see was this little church called Holy Trinity. Uh, Holy Trinity, Cambridge, doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but... Um, Back in the 19th century, there was a guy called Charles Simeon who was the minister there, and he was really influential in a lot of different ways. He arrived as minister in 1783, and when he first arrived, the church didn't want anything to do with him. They did everything they could to stop people hearing him preach because he was an evangelical. They used to lock the doors on Sunday so he couldn't get in. They'd force people to stand, they'd clear away their, their chairs or when Simeon bought his own chairs along for people to hear him, they chucked the chairs out into the marketplace and set them on fire. But slowly, the church began to fill with not so much the town, but with students from the university. And it was out of that ministry that um, modern university student ministry was founded. The EU traces its heritage back to that ministry that Charles Simeon started in the 19th century. He was a pretty busy guy in lots of other ways. He was there at the Holy Trinity in 1836. During that time, he helped start the Bible Society in the UK. He was one of the founders of the Church Missionary Society with William Wilberforce. He helped fight against slavery. 
and was uh, really responsible for the flourishing and promotion of evangelical ministry in the UK. It's estimated that a third of English ministers in the 19th century at some point sat under his teaching. And the most influential and widely respected historian of 19th century Britain says that Charles Simeon's influence was greater than any archbishop in the Church of England. So this was a guy who achieved a lot. He had accomplished more than 99% of ministers ever, ever do in their life. And yet when he retired in 1836, a friend of his found Simeon still rising every morning at 4 a.m. to light his own fire, to sit, to read God's word, to repent, to pray, and to spend time with God. 4 a.m. I don't think I could do it. Uh, his friend as well thought that this was overkill. Simeon had just retired. Surely it's time to sit back, kick up your heels. He said to Simeon once, Do you not think that now that you are retired, you might take things more easily? And Simeon was kind of shocked by this. What? he said. Shall I now not run with all my might when the winning post is in sight? I tell us this story because when it comes to biblical, personal, spiritual habits, it's really easy to be a sprinter. You get into a good habit of reading the Bible. You build some persistence in prayer. It lasts for four, maybe six, sometimes eight weeks at the most. And then you get knocked off course when exams or a cold work or holidays come. It's easy to be a sprinter. But when it comes to growing in maturity, to real Christian growth, growth with depth. It's always more like being a long distance runner than a sprinter. It takes years of discipline, years of developing practices and habits which will help you on towards the goal of finishing the race well, like Simeon said. It's like how it takes years of practice to enjoy the power of playing the piano beautifully. But what we're talking about in this series goes beyond even that in depth and complexity. Paul says pretty much the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9 when he talks about running his life with purpose and discipline. He says in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, do not think. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. When it comes to biblical spiritual habits, and especially to the habit of prayer, don't be a sprinter. Be a long-distance runner. Uh, we're going to think about that today, how to be a long-distance prayer. And we've got, there's three points that we're going to use to get into this topic. How to pray continually, firstly. Well, firstly, pray continually. Secondly, why don't we pray continually? And thirdly, how to pray continually. As we long to be long-distance runners, people whose lives are marked by a prayerful dependence on God, pray continually, firstly. Secondly, why don't we pray continually? And thirdly, 
how to pray continually. Now, the parable that was just read for us from Luke's Gospel is one that's given to us directly by Jesus to encourage his followers to pray persistently and to be persistent in prayer. You can see that in verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Uh, Luke kind of breaks all conventions about spoiler alerts here because he tells us right away what this parable is about. It's about persistence in prayer, expecting that God will listen when we pray. What he paints for us is a really familiar scene in the first century. If you wanted justice from the legal system, there was very rarely any lawyers that you could go to. There were no court buildings or anything like that. You had to go find the judge and plead your case on your own. And Jesus adds an extra detail to this painting. What we have here is an unjust judge. Twice we're told, actually, in the parable that this judge neither fears God nor humans. He literally can't be shamed into action. And in the cultural context that operates on a on a shame axis, where you want to save face and avoid being shamed, that's kind of a big deal. This judge can't be moved into action by fear of human or divine retribution. And so he turns a cold shoulder to the helpless widow. And that might not mean much to us, but if you were there hearing this directly from Jesus, you would know how vulnerable and dire the circumstances of this widow are. Uh, in Middle Eastern society, widows were often a symbol of vulnerability without male family members around to provide for them. In the ancient world, widows were often prone to poverty and destitution and sexual violence and exploitation. And typically, women didn't go to court to represent themselves. In the Middle Eastern context, a man from her family would go in her place. And so when this woman appears before this judge, on her own, we know that she really is alone. There's no father, there's no uncle, no brother, no son, no one to speak for her. She has to plead her case on her own before this shameless judge who just doesn't want to listen. And so with no other help, the widow plays the only card she has, which is her loud and persistent pleading. Grant me justice against my adversary, she cries. Uh, she refuses to go quiet, or to go away until the judge surrenders. She sticks with it with a perseverance and persistence. And the judge finally relents, not, of, not out of a concern for her and not out of a concern for justice being done, but because he takes a realistic look at his own self-interest. Uh, in the passage that was read for us, it said... I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Now the judge finally decides that ignoring the widow is no longer in his self-interest. Um, it seems like he could be worried that she's going to physically lash out at him. The word for attack means to give someone a black eye. So he could be worried about a physical blow here. But it could also be, in the Middle Eastern context, a kind of metaphorical blow that this widow is browbeating the judge into action with her relentless and exhausting pleading. He basically says, she's giving me a headache. I can't put up with the racket any longer. So the judge relents 
and settles her case in her favour to be rid of her. And right from the start of this parable, we've had a hunch that this is how things would probably turn out. We get that the widow is someone that we're meant to emulate. She's tenacious. She doesn't give up. But then Jesus adds a sudden twist into the parable in verses 6 and 7. This whole time, Jesus has been setting up a comparison between the uncaring, corrupt, self-interested judge and God. Which can't be right. Surely not. God is tender-hearted and kind, righteous and just. He makes the cause of widows and orphans his own cause. How could God be like this judge? Surely God's not like him. That's exactly the point that Jesus has been making for us. If an unjust, self-interested judge will help a widow, how much more will your heavenly Father help you? Jesus says, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? The implied answer there, of course, is no, he won't. He loves you. He loves us. He hears us. Um, from our vantage point, though, 2,000 years after these words were first said, you may be very well tempted to believe that God does put us off. But God is not like this unjust judge. We don't have to nag him into submission. He doesn't wait to listen until we've made things uncomfortable for him. God listens to the prayers of his people because they're his people. And so Jesus says that there are two things to take from this parable. Firstly, we can be confident that God will hear us, but we also need to be extremely patient with God's timing. And the idea that people are crying out night and day reflects that patience. But secondly, we should be willing to pray with temerity and perseverance, that is, to pray boldly and patiently, waiting weeks and months and even years for God to answer some things. When, God, uh, when Jesus spoke earlier in Luke's Gospel about prayer back in chapter 11, he says that we should pray with shameless audacity. Literally, we should pray with rudeness or assertiveness. We can pray, says Jesus, with boldness, with perseverance, and we can be specific about the things that we pray for because God is patient and he listens to us. So Jesus says, don't stop praying. God hears you, and that's really clear and indisputable from this parable. So, let me ask the question, why don't we pray? A few years ago, the church I attend conducted a survey on people's spiritual lives. They had 168 responders. 46% of people said that they really struggled with their prayer life and they wanted some help. 82% said that their prayer life was irregular and infrequent, sometimes between once a week and once a month. 28% said that their personal prayer life was lacking in richness and depth. And it could just be that that's unique to the church that I go to, but I suspect that prayer is something that lots of Christians struggle with, and maybe even some of the people in this room today. Why do we find prayer hard? I wonder, there are quite a few options. It could be sleep. It could be that we just really love sleeping and don't get up to pray. It could be that we spend too long awake at night. 
We're so ill-disciplined with our time that our late-night procrastination stops us from praying. It could be that we're so caught up with work and study, we're so busy in the library reading books, or too busy covering shifts at our job that we find it hard to pray. But I wonder, though, if there's maybe something deeper at play here. You may have noticed over the last five years or so, there's been some wider pushback on the usefulness and effectiveness of prayer in our society. And it's especially gathered around that little phrase, thoughts and prayers. Uh, That's often been quite a flashpoint. It's a phrase that's attracted a lot of derision, especially on Twitter. And it's kind of entered into our cultural psyche. There have been lots of comedic sketches about it, lots of memes. I think my favorite one is the Lord of the Rings one where Rohan sends sends thoughts and prayers and positive vibes to Gondor. Um, This is a little phrase that's entered into our psyche. And you may have seen there was a sketch recently on the ABC that the comedian Sammy J did. Uh, We're going to watch it. Bedside prayers, that's a kid's stuff, you know, hope grandma gets better, please look after my dog in heaven, that sort of thing, but you get bored, don't you? So then I will promote it up to uh, prayers and bargaining, so that's sort of, um, dear God, if you help me pass this test, I'll start coming back to church, you know, but look, ultimately any angel worth his halo wants to be here in thoughts and prayers, I mean, that is the biggest market, literally anyone can send us. You know, there's a natural disaster, or say a mass shooting involving multiple deaths of innocent people, people can just send thoughts and prayers, feels great. You can even do it on the toilet. I guess it's easier to say something than actually do something. That's that's probably why they're so popular. Gary, check this one out. Heartfelt thoughts and prayers. Just better than normal thoughts and prayers. Heartfelt thoughts and prayers. Yeah, from the heart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no help for Brexit. I guess it's easier to say something than to actually do something. I wonder if this kind of this flashpoint thoughts and prayers and the derision that praying has kind of attracted over the last five years, if that has built into this pressure on us. Uh, and it kind of it's always been there, but it's here now in a new and intense way, this pressure to not actually pray. I mean, why bother? Do we find it hard to pray with regularity and richness? Because deep down, we're not actually sure that praying will make a difference to our lives or to the lives of the people around us. Does God actually listen to what we have to say? Are we just talking to ourselves? I became a Christian. I worked out 20 years ago this year. 
which means that for the last 20 years, I've been praying for my family to become Christian. And surely that's a prayer that God loves to answer, right? We know that the angels rejoice when the lost are brought home. But so far in the face of things, surface of things, as, as much as I can work out, that prayer hasn't been answered yet. 20 years of asking God to have mercy on my mum, on my dad, on my two brothers. How do I keep going for another 20 years or more? Sometimes I think actually it's just easier to not pray for them. Then I don't have to worry about it. It's less emotionally taxing. Does prayer actually make a difference? There's a book that I found really useful this year as I've been thinking about prayer. It's called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And he suggests that many Christians haven't stopped believing in God, but we have just become functional deists, living with God at a distance. Um, deism, you may know, is an old belief system which believes that while God made the world, he kind of left the scene, is no longer involved in the operations of the world or our own lives. He effectively left us on our own to make whatever mix mistakes we want to. And I wonder if that's true for me and the lack of things that I don't pray for or just the lack of my own prayerfulness. Is it true for you as well? Have we become functional deists? Maybe not so much on the surface of things. With our mouths, we believe that this is God's world, that he cares for it and sustains it, that he sent Jesus to save it. But Miller suggests that many of us act and live as if God is not involved in the affairs of the world, that we can just get on and do our thing and make the best out of what we have. When we wake up in the morning, when we step onto campus to study, as we plan for the future, as we walk into that fraught situation at work, as we process the highs and lows of life, as we reflect on ourselves and the nature of our relationships, as we watch the news each night, do we think that God is actually involved in these things? That he can make a difference in any of these situations? Have we prayed about them or have we completely removed God from our lives? Have we effectively become functional deists? You see, when that happens, the real you, the you that has been bought and restored by Jesus stops encountering the true and living real God. Because prayer is so much more than just sending best wishes or positive vibes to people. In the Bible, prayer is about aligning the desires of your heart with God's plans and purposes for the world. Prayer is about experiencing and knowing intimacy and fellowship with God. Prayer in the Bible is this rich privilege that Christians get to enjoy where they talk to God who has spoken to them in his Bible, where we get to feast on fellowship with him, we get to commune with God. And that's not just any God, it's the real God, the God who cares for you and actually knows you better than you know yourself, the God who listens to you, the God whose heart burns for justice, 
but is slow and patient with people, the real God. And that's why Jesus is so adamant that prayer does make a difference. He says in Luke 18 verse 7, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Jesus asked, will God keep putting them off? The ESV and the Holman, they put that question as something like, will God delay in helping them? Uh, the waiting might seem like a long time for us, but what Jesus is saying is that God is patient, he's slow to anger and long-suffering. He doesn't delay long because he doesn't give up. It literally says that he does not lose heart with his elect chosen people. So don't mistake God's patience to mean that God is giving us the cold shoulder. God is not ghosting you. Our perspective on timing may not always match God's. There may be good reasons why God makes us wait a long time to see some prayers answered. God may also have good reasons for answering our prayers in ways that we never wanted or expected. But God is not avoiding you. God, who speaks to you, hears you when you respond to him in prayer. God hears you. God listens to you. You can come to him with your worries and talk with God about your anxieties. You can pray your fears to him. He listens to you. But how do we actually know that? How do we know that God saves us and hears us? Uh, in this parable, Jesus invites us to take his word that we should always pray and not give up. But how do we know? In the way that is not meant to be trite, the way that we can know that God hears us, that he listens to our prayers, is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of Man, who came among us only to be betrayed and deserted. Jesus, the Son of Man, who prayed through tears and sweated blood that he might be spared from the cup that he was going to drink, and yet prayed, but my will, but your will be done. God's own Son became a person who, without sinning, carried the sins of the whole world to hell. He suffered unspeakable injustice. He entrusted himself to his Father and died the death that we deserve so that you and I could be justified and vindicated by God. He gave up everything so that we could have the outcome that the widow gets in the parable, that we would be justified. He entered into our world, into our mess. He bore our sin so that we could not only know God, but call God Father. We could enter into God's family. And once more, God raised Jesus from the grave and seated Jesus at his side. Jesus crashed through death. It says in Romans 8, 34, that Jesus is at the right hand of God, <clears throat> interceding for us. Just let that truth roll around in your head for a moment. Jesus prays for you. He continues to minister to you. When you can't pray, when you don't know what to pray, <clears throat> your high priest prays for you. In fact, it's not just Jesus. Verse 26 of Romans 8 says that God the Holy Spirit does it too. We do not know what we ought to pray for, 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. <clears throat> this pledge of undying love, of raising Jesus as our high priest to God's side, is God's pledge that he hears us when we pray. And so Jesus calls us to pray continually, not because we have to, but because we can. This is what we get to do as Jesus' siblings, as members of God's family. We get to pray not because our prayers justify us, but because we're justified. And when you get that, that's when you can pray without giving up. That's when you can pray and know that you're not just talking to yourself. That's when you can actually start talking with the real God who rules the world and has freely chosen to take your best interests to his own heart. That's why Jesus urges us to pray with regular, sustained, deep prayer. So let me ask you, has this beauty and goodness of the gospel shaped the way that you pray, the way that you approach God? Do you approach God in prayer with apprehension, apprehension and trepidation and resignation? Is prayer something you do because you feel like you should because you're a good little Christian? Or do you come to God in prayer trusting that God actually delights in hearing from you? He's not upset or annoyed that you pray to him. He delights in it. He loves it when you pray to him. Our technique and discipline, they're really useful as well in establishing a habit, cultivating a habit of prayer. And we'll get to them in a moment. But true spirituality comes from the intimacy and friendship and communion that's available to us and persistently and simply praying to God as Jesus did, as your Father in heaven. So pray. Commit all things to God. Seek Him for all wisdom. Pray bold prayers. Pray for the lost to be saved. Pray for revival to break out on campus. In prayer, in supplication, in petition and lamentation, in thanksgiving and praise, open your heart to your Father and pray for the big things in this world and the little things in your life. Pray. Jesus says that we can spread our needs and concerns before God because God is our Heavenly Father who has bound himself to us. So as we come to the end There's obviously a whole lot more we could say about prayer. The Bible talks a lot about prayer. It's just everywhere in the pages of Scripture. It talks a lot about personal prayer and corporate prayer, prayer for revival, prayer for mission, prayer for society and the church. And it's worth, in the years that you have, investing time and energy and money to grow in your prayer life to go to prayer meetings at church and here on campus so that you can not only pray, but also learn from others how to pray more and more. Find good books on prayer. Listen to good sermons on prayer. Don't neglect investing in your prayer life so that you can spend deep, rich time enjoying God and bringing your needs and concerns to him. I have a friend who has just started to do this in a more deliberate way. She's one of the smartest and most creative people I know. She's just really good with people. And she's just reached her early 30s and realized that the last 10 years of her life have been marked by a real absence of prayer. She just 
she fi fi finished uni and forgot to pray for 10 years. And that has led to a real dryness in her relationship with God. You know, she had real excuses. She got busy with work and church and everything else. But she didn't pray. And she could see that bear terrible fruit in her own life. Now, as she's reflected on that and dealt with that, she's decided that um, she wants prayer to be a kind of legacy for her. The thing that she wants to be in her life is a prayer warrior. Someone who looks back towards the end of her life and sees that prayer, rich, deep, regular prayer, is something that has, in effect, owned her, has marked her life and sustained her life. Um, what she does now is get up 30 minutes earlier than she used to in the morning to read the Bible and pray. It's no 4 a.m. like Charles Simeon. She gets up at 6.30 instead of 7 to sit and pray and spend time with God. And she prays for lots of things, for the needs of the world and the church, for the lost in her family and the spread of the gospel around the world. She prays for her own life, the, the things that she's anxious and worried about. She prays that she would be ki killing sin and she repents, that she would grow in holiness and godliness and be cultivating good fruit and virtue in her own life. She spends time adoring God and praising him for his excellence. And it's an incredible spiritual ambition. Like Charles Simeon, she wants to be a long distance runner when it comes to prayer. Now, one of the things that she's realized as she started doing this is that cultivating a habit of regular sustained deep prayer doesn't happen overnight. It takes time in the same way that a long distance runner doesn't run a marathon on their very first training run. There have been times when she's got five minutes into it and then hasn't known what to do. But the more that she's done it, the more that she's cultivated and developed this habit, the better she's got at being able to enjoy rich, sustained prayer. And she's not interested in doing it for her own sake. It's not about her own reputation. She's praying so that she can enjoy God and grow in that relationship as his child. So if you're feeling like you're starting out from scratch with your prayer habits, if you're starting on a kind of maybe a blank canvas in cultivating this biblical, personal, spiritual habit of prayer. Here are five simple suggestions, which I've kind of stolen from that Paul Miller book, that you can use to cultivate regular, sustained, maybe even daily prayer in your life. And the first one is this. Go to bed. Go to bed on time or early. What you do in the evening will shape your morning. My friend, she started um, implementing a strict kind of discipline of getting to bed at 10 and not staying up to 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning so that she can get up and pray and not feel tired. If you want to pray in the morning or at any other point, plan out the rest of your day, plan out your evening so that you don't stay up too late and get exhausted. Go to bed. Trust that God's in control of the world, that you don't need to be up 24-7. Enjoy sleep. It's a gift from God. Go to bed. And secondly, get up and get awake. You'll never develop a regular prayer time in bed. I tried to when I was 25. I had very little prayer. I had lots of great sleep, but no prayer. 
Um, so make sure you get up out of bed, go to a quiet place where you won't be interrupted. And thirdly, get comfortable. Not so comfortable that you fall asleep again. I've done that too. Uh, but somewhere where you won't be interrupted and don't feel like you need to kneel or anything while you're praying. It's not so much about the physical posture, but about the posture of the heart. That's what God cares for. Find somewhere that you won't be interrupted so you can pray without being distracted. And then fourthly, after you've gone to bed and then gotten up and gotten awake and gotten comfortable, get going. Start maybe with just five minutes. Start with a small goal that you can attain and build upon because that's how habits work. And it usually takes about 40 to 50 days to build a regular habit. So just get going. Maybe use the Psalms as your model as you pray. Or if you want a prayer which exemplifies the truth that short prayer is good prayer, try the Lord's Prayer. It's short, really. It's not verbose. It doesn't use words for the sake of using words, but it's full of rich and de um, deep, deep thoughts and ideas and prays for lots of things. And what happens when you use the prayers of Scripture is that you're not only being guided by God's Word, you're not only letting God's Word form you as you pray, you're also praying God's word back to him. And fifthly, keep going. Consistency is more important than length. Jesus is so concerned with you hanging in there in prayer that he very explicitly tells us this parable. Pray, keep going in prayer. And when you fall out of the habit, you know what to do. Repent, because that's what we do as Christians. And ask God, to help you cultivate this habit and then get going again. Pray. Uh, if you don't know how to pray or if you're feeling stuck in your prayer life as well, make sure you ask a friend to help you with that. Maybe find someone in your faculty this week who will help you grow in your range and capacity to pray. Pray for the lost on campus and for the needs of one another, for the affairs of the world and the spread of the gospel. There's something beautiful and rich when you pray with other people and they will help you grow in your prayer life. The amazing thing is with these biblical personal spiritual habits is that you don't need to um, find a budget of thousands of dollars or get planning approval from a committee to start. You can use existing structures and some discipline will get you going. But you just need to cultivate that heart, that heart that comes from the gospel so that you pray and seek God. The point is, pray. And when you know that you can approach God with boldness and tenacity, because you approach him as your father, that's when you'll find real joy and delight in your prayer life. It just so happens that we live in a time now that is simultaneously increasingly secular and spiritual. And we live in a culture that is starved for deep experience of the soul and what Jesus offers you is true intimacy with the infinite, real God. And it's in that friendship with God that we find the key to going the distance in prayer. So pray. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up.